in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 23, second book in the Bible. Genesis, then Exodus, and Exodus chapter 23. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 20. Exodus chapter 23, and begin reading in verse 20. The Bible says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then... I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land among you. Uh, I'm sorry, be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you, and you will throw them into confusion against the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out, and, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Today we're going to continue our little summer series through the book of Joshua. This morning we're coming to Joshua chapter 5, and it's here in Joshua chapter 5 that we actually find the words of God to Moses, which we just read there in Exodus 23, being fulfilled. So just think about, as, as we look at, Genesis, uh, at Joshua chapter 5, just think about Joshua chapter 5 in light of what we just read in Exodus 23. And what we read there is that the key to Israel's success in the promised land was not going to be their military might and their military skill on the battlefield. The key for Israel, friends, was to, would be for them to learn to obey the angel of the Lord sent by God. That's the key. Now, by the time we get to Joshua chapter 5, the people have crossed over the river Jordan. They are now on the western side of the Jordan in the land that God had promised to His people. 
This, friends, is the very reason why He called them out of Egypt. Why He called them out of slavery in Egypt. Why He brought them to freedom. And now they're in that place. And there are enemies all around them. And so you would ask the question, well, what's going to be necessary for them to face all of these enemies that are all the way around them? Surely they should have their swords sharpened and battle plans ready and and arrangements for the army made. But what is really necessary, or what is rather of primary importance, as we'll see in Joshua chapter 5, is their relationship to Almighty God. That's what's really important. As we come to Joshua chapter 5, we begin to notice the results of the people crossing over the river Jordan on dry ground. What were the results? Well, namely, the people, uh, the the surrounding people uh, were melting. Their their hearts were melting. You should understand that these people, the people we just read about, the Hivites and the Amorites and the termites or whatever we read about there all of those people there they were wicked people by and large if you want to know about the wickedness of these people you can just look at leviticus chapter 18 leviticus chapter 18 sort of inventories the wickedness of their people and god summarized their wickedness in chapter 18 verse 25 when he said the land became unclean so that i punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants Now the reality is that all of these people, the Amorites of whom would be sort of the the, the Canaanites we might say, or the Amorites, they could be representative. All of these people knew God. This was not an issue of whether or not these people knew that God existed. They knew Him. Paul tells us that everyone, everywhere, all the time knows that God exists. But the problem is... They suppress the truth that they know. I want to show you something before we get into Joshua chapter 5. I want you to go with me to Genesis chapter 15 for a moment. Genesis chapter 15, and I want to just point your attention to verse 12, 12 through 16. This is God's covenant with Abram. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Now this is the phrase I want you to see. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What we understand by this is that God was actually being patient with these these incredibly wicked people, with these incredibly wicked Canaanites, God was being patient with them. However, they persisted in their wickedness and their idolatry and their moral perversion. God waited, friends, 400 years. 400 years God waited. And yet, what did they do during that time? 
while God was waiting, they just piled up their perversity. They, they, they continued in their sin and in their wickedness and in their idolatry. And even when these same people saw the people of God coming, even when they saw the people of God coming across the Red Sea on dry ground, they heard about how God dried up the Red Sea. And even they saw, even though they saw God bringing judgment on wicked kings, just like it says back in Joshua chapter 2, they still resisted. In Joshua 2, I want to remind you, you have the testimony of Rahab the prostitute who said this, As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's the testimony of Rahab the prostitute. They all knew exactly what Paul says everyone knows intuitively. What is that? Listen to Romans chapter 1 for a moment. Roman, and, and this is a passage of Scripture we've been to many times. But Romans chapter 1, just listen to Romans 1 verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. These incredibly wicked people, morally perverse people, God was patient with them over the years. And the Bible says by the time we get to Joshua chapter 5, their hearts are melting. Their hearts are melting. That word melted is a word that speaks of fainting with discouragement and fear. We might say they were shaking in their boots because they knew that God existed. And they knew that God was coming to judge them and yet they still would not repent. Can you imagine having all of that knowledge and still refusing to repent? Now just keep in mind, keep this in mind when we come later to read of the great judgment that is exacted on these people and entire people groups are defeated, dismantled, and demolished and brought to severe judgment. Keep that in mind when we see these people being destroyed in the presence of a holy God. Keep in mind how God was patient toward them. How He was patient toward them for 400 years. And keep in mind that they persisted in their wickedness. And then God brought, brings destruction. And let that be a reminder to us and a lesson to all of us as we consider this within our own hearts and within our own minds. Indeed, God is being patient toward us today, is He not? God is doing something special. By the time we come to Joshua chapter 5 this morning in our text, God is doing something special for His people. He is taking His covenant people and He is bringing them into the land which He has promised. God is building a nation. He is fulfilling His Word. But God is not in a rush. Do you see that? God is not in a rush. He's giving the Canaanite people, and when I say Canaanites, I'm just using that as representative of all of those people that we read about in Exodus 23. He's given these Canaanites over to the, their sin so that he might, they might sin to their full, and he waited 400 years. Now, just a side note, 
So many of us today are looking at what's going on in America and indeed in the world and we see the continuing rise of idolatry and all kinds of immorality all around and we think that surely this must wear the patience of God thin. I want to warn you against thinking too little about God. Thinking too lightly about His patience. He is great in patience. He waited 400 years years before exacting judgment on the Amorites. He waited 400 years to allow the Amorites to reach the point where they would be irreparably condemned in judgment. So just keep that in mind as we think about our own time and our own age. Now I want to avoid, when we come to the study of the book of Joshua, I want to avoid the allegorizing of these texts and I want to avoid trying to spiritualize all of these details. I believe that to be an errant hermeneutic. If your hermeneutic is an, is an allegorical hermeneutic or involves spiritualizing texts where there's secret messages and hidden meanings behind every little thing, you, you've missed it. You've missed the boat. What we have here in the book of Joshua is a real historical account. We're not talking about myths or legends. This is what really happened. Now there are lessons to be sure. The Bible tells us that whatever things were written before were written for our learning. But these lessons are not just up to the whim of your imagination. You don't just get to, to discover, to think about what it's about and then pull it out of your own mind. There are rock solid lessons for us. This book, as I told you at the beginning, is not about the greatness of Joshua. It's a really fitting song, by the way, Corey, that you chose for today. It's not about the greatness of Joshua. Yes, God exalted him in the sight of all Israel, and that's a wonderful thing, but it's not because Joshua is so great. It's because God is. What it's telling us is that God is faithful to his promises even when his leaders are laid to rest. Even when Moses dies... God is faithful to do what He said He would do. What we see here is what we might call the continuity of God's covenant. It transcends time. And while Joshua is the necessary human agent, this book is really about God. One commentator said God is the hero of the book of Joshua. Everything is attributed to him. I think maybe the, the greatest theme verse of the book of Joshua is in Joshua chapter 21 verse 45 which says, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So with that in mind, the people have crossed over the Jordan. The hearts of the Canaanite peoples are melting in fearful discouragement. It must have been quite a time for the people of Israel. Seeing what they saw, hearing what they heard, they, were, they, they had to be riding high on a spirit of just, they were ready to go at it, charge, charge into the enemy territory with remembering what God had just done. But they ought to be on high alert because they're in enemy territory. Have you noticed that it's when you're most closely following the Lord's will that you're most often attacked? By his enemies. But more than that, while the people of Canaan were trembling before the Lord, it's now time for the people of Israel to tremble before the Lord. It's now time for his people to tremble. 
And it's in times like this that they have to recall what God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 23, that they ought to listen. And they ought to obey. And they must remember. And you know what? Not much has changed for us today. In the midst of enemy territory, as we might say, in the midst of tribulations and difficulties and trial and suffering, not much has changed. We need to learn to listen and obey. The children of Israel must listen. They must obey as God sends His angel to direct them. That's exactly what we see happening here in in Joshua chapter 5. And if you're going to listen and obey in times like these, there are three truths that have to be called to mind. Three reminders that you and I must be given. Three reminders that these people are given right here in Joshua chapter 5. You will notice here in the first couple of verses, in verses 2 through 9, that there is a reminder of the promise of Yahweh. A reminder of the promise of Almighty God, verses 2 through 9. And then in verses 10 through 12, there is a reminder of the provision of Yahweh. A reminder of the promise of Yahweh, and then a reminder of the provision of Yahweh. And then to close out the text, verses 13 through 15, a reminder of the preeminence of Yahweh. A reminder of His promise, a reminder of His provision, and a reminder of His preeminence. That fly. He's trying to get down my throat. I'm going to breathe in and that's going to be it. I just wanted to wake you up. I noticed some of you nodding, so... All right, three great reminders. Let's look now at Joshua chapter 5. We read all that in Exodus. Now we're going to read this chapter in Joshua. Joshua chapter 5. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over... Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who had come, who had come out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that He would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom He had raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. While the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. 
And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn, with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. It's my hope this morning that as we look at these three great reminders, a reminder of the promise of Yahweh and the provision of Yahweh and the preeminence of Yahweh, it's my hope this morning that you and I will be led to a a point of renewing in our own heart and in our own mind a renewal of our loyalty and obedience to the Almighty God as you go about living life until He returns or until He calls you home. In verses 2 through 9 of Joshua chapter 5, we have this, this account of the circumcising of the males of Israel. Now, you would think that it would be high time to, to advance the army. The stage is now set to, 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 to assemble an attack against the first of the Canaanite cities, the, the city of Jericho. But remember, what's important for the people of Israel is not their battle plans. What's important is not their weapons. What's important is their relationship to God. And so God, in Joshua chapter 5, verse 2, gives clear instructions. Make sharpened stones of flint. Not iron, not metal of any kind. Sharpened stones of flint and conduct a mass circumcision of the sons of Israel. Now, for 40 years, the command of God to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, that command to circumcise every male child, for 40 years it had been ignored. The people wandered in the wilderness and they just completely disregarded the command of God. They were called, according to Joshua chapter 5 verse 6, a disobedient people. They were a disobedient people. They did not obey the voice of the Lord. All of the people who had come out of Egypt, all of those men who had come out of Egypt, they all received the sign of circumcision, but they all died in the wilderness. Why? Because even though they received the outward sign, they were disobedient. And that's probably a sermon in and of itself, right? Having the outward marks of being a child of God, but all the while being disobedient. Nevertheless, you you know what this passage is all about. This passage that we just read. I mean, several times we read the word circumcision. It's it's almost uncomfortable as many times as as it comes up. It's about circumcision. It's about the people of God remembering something that God told Abram to do. Namely, to circumcise the male children. The cutting away of the foreskin of the Hebrew male was to be a sign, a reminder of the promise that God made. 
the covenant that God made with Abram. Genesis 17, 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And there's a lot of time taken to, to figure out why this sign is so important and why it's emphasized. And maybe we could say that there are several purposes that this served. I mean, the foreskin of the male could hide and pass on disease to a woman. It was a reminder. Maybe some say it was a reminder of man's sin and, and his need for cleansing. But while those things may be true, this thing of circumcision was ultimately a sign to point to or to remind the people of God of the covenant that God made with Abraham. What covenant? Remember Genesis chapter 12. Let's just go back there very quickly. Genesis chapter 12. Remember this covenant. God makes this promise to Abram. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That promise is played out more vividly in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, we see God's promise to give Abraham an, an heir, a nation, and a land. And we just read earlier in verses 12 through 16 how God did that. And how God caused a deep sleep to come through Abraham. And he himself, God himself, entered into this covenant. It was not a, a, a mutually you know, agreed upon covenant where Abraham said, I'll do these things. And God said, well, if you do these things, then I'll do this. It was a covenant, a promise that God said, my own life is on the line. My very existence is on the line. If I do not see this promise through, my life is on the line. And thus, circumcision, as we read later in Genesis 17, became a sign of that promise. Circumcision became a sign, a pointer to that promise so that all the nation of Israel would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God had declared His Word. And so, God calls Joshua... In Joshua chapter 5, to circumcise all of the males. Because why? They hadn't been. They hadn't been circumcised for 40 years. The entire generation just ignored God's commandment. They just ignored this covenant sign. It wasn't important to them. The promise of God wasn't important to them. They were going their own way. They were the disobedient generation. And so God says to Joshua... Get sharp flint stones and make sure that all of the males are circumcised. Now, I want to tell you what happens here in Joshua chapter 5, all of it doesn't make any human sense. This is not the time to circumcise your entire fighting army when you're in the midst of enemy land. It doesn't make any sense sense human, humanly speaking you do not want to incapacitate the entire fighting force of your army this would most certainly be deadly for the people of Israel and so what we have here 
is an expression of trusting God. It's an expression of trusting God. In this specific case, the people of Israel are entering the promised land and they're remembering the fulfillment. They're, They're coming into the fulfillment of what God told Abraham hundreds of years prior. And thus... God says to Joshua, and Joshua, well, Joshua says this, uh, uh, reports what God said in verse 9 of chapter 5, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. God says that in this circumcision, I'm rolling away, I'm cutting away, I'm taking away the reproach of Egypt on you. So much so that the, that the, the name of that place became Gilgal. We still don't know where it is, but it, it, it has the idea of a roll. This is the place where the reproach was rolled away. The place where the, the cutting away of the reproach took place. What is that reproach? Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy 9.28 says, Lest the land from which you brought us, say the land from which you brought us is Egypt, Because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that He promised them, and because He hated them, He has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. The reproach of Egypt was the disgrace that the Egyptians were heaping on the Israelites, saying, look, their God was strong, but not strong enough. Their God was able, but not able enough. And He brought them out and they were just waiting like so many vultures. They were waiting for the people of Israel to be utterly destroyed in the midst of the wilderness. And now they're brought into the promised land and the entire army is incapacitated. Because they didn't come in by their own might and their own intellect, their own ingenuity. They came in by an unmistakable work of God. They were led by the angel that God promised to send them forth. How did God open the the Jordan River? I am telling you the angel of the Lord put down his hands and stopped up that river. And we're going to see that angel come out in just a moment. God was doing what He promised He would do and He is putting the disgrace that Egypt hurled at the Israelites behind them. Now we roll that away. All that sin and all that disgrace and all that despair, we're rolling it away. And it was essential for those people to remember God's covenant promise to Abraham. They weren't going to be successful because of their might or intellect, but because of the blessing of Yahweh in Himself. Do you understand that it is only insofar as they were united to Him that they would be able to face the opposition of their enemies and the temptation afforded by the world. Let me tell you, friends, listen, you've got to remember the promise of God in His world. It's always this way. That's what the promise of God is what sustains and motivates the people of God to continue on faithful to God, no matter the delay. No matter, it's taking a long time. 
God's truth, well, the, 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 the psalm says God's truth is marching on. God's truth is marching on no matter what takes place in this world. And they must remember the promise of Yahweh. And that's what they do in this circumcising of an entire generation of males in Israel. doesn't make sense. But God says, I don't need it to make sense. I need you to trust me. Secondly, they must remember the provision of Yahweh, and I'll try to hurry. The second thing that really doesn't make sense in this, in this passage is what takes place in verses 10 through 12, because all of a sudden, in the midst of the wilderness, having been circumcised, now the people are not only incapacitated, but now they're celebrating it with a meal. You don't do that on the battlefield. You don't just sit down and have a picnic in the middle of, of enemy territory. They are, as they camp there at that place where the, the, the rolling away of the reproach of Egypt took place, they kept the Passover. And it's almost said nonchalantly. It's almost as if it's just said in passing by, but this is so significant. Because here they are in the land and they're observing the Passover meal just after the renewing of the covenant. By the way, just as a side note, there's some good evidence, primarily in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that would tell us that probably the events of chapter 8, verses 30 through 35, actually took place at this time. You might read that, and we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it. But just to notice that, that what took place there, that renewing of the covenant. But here they are, they're, they're eating the Passover meal. What's the Passover meal? It's that meal that the people of Israel ate the night that the angel of the Lord passed over those who had applied the blood to the doorposts of the houses. And, he, and, and when he went through Egypt, when the angel of the Lord came through Egypt, he would not bring death and destruction to the house that was marked out by the blood. It was a reminder. A reminder to the people that apart from this, they were under the threat of judgment. But now there they are, in the land, and they're remembering the Passover. They're just celebrating the Passover meal, remind, remembering what God had provided. But what's emphasized in this text, verses 10 through 12, is it, it's almost passing by. Oh yeah, they, they, they celebrated the Passover. But what's really emphasized, and specifically the writer, who I think is Joshua, says, the, specifically identifies the timing, the date. The day after the Passover... The 15th day, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land. And after that, the manna ceased. That's so significant for Joshua. Why? Because for 40 years, day in and day out, they've been eating manna. They've been eating, just eating manna, collecting In the morning, they wake up, they collect their manna, they eat their manna, you know, Banana bread, manna burgers, everything that they could imagine, they were making out of this, and just the same thing over and over and over and over again. But now they come into the land of promise. They have the, the covenant sign. They take the Passover meal, and God says, just like He promised back in Exodus chapter 23, verse 24, 5, I'll bless your bread and I'll bless your water. Then they began to eat of the produce of the land. What's Joshua saying? God was faithful. God did exactly what He promised to do 
even though so much time had passed from when he promised. They're eating the produce of the land. The manna ceased. That, I mean, it's amazing enough that the manna had gone on so consistently. And that's certainly a mark of God's faithfulness. But now, after many years of wandering and years of manna, day in and day out, they're now enjoying the produce of the land, telling the Israelites, telling the people of Israel, your wandering is over. Your pro- the promised provision is upon them. And he wants to emphasize this. You see, any victory that they experience is owing to the gracious provision of Yahweh. The celebration of Passover reminded them of this. And they celebrated and they enjoyed such great provision. They deserved nothing. And yet they received this great blessing. There in the midst of your enemies. I don't, again, I, just think about Psalm 23. You prepare a table for before me in the presence of my enemies. You see God's great provision. It's a reminder of God's promise. That's what they need. And they need a reminder of God's provision. But then lastly and quickly, they need a reminder of God's preeminence. Now this is just this last section, verses 13 through 15. I'm not going to take, take time to, to go through it details. We'll do that next week. But I want to highlight something. Here is Joshua next to Jericho. The scene is set. People perhaps are still recovering from the circumcision. They're still recovering from the Passover meal. But Joshua is there next to Jericho. What's he doing? Supposing that he's doing what any good commander would do. He's scoping out the territory, thinking about the battle that would most surely ensue. And instead of seeing Jericho, what does he see? He sees a man standing with sword drawn. And Joshua just walks right up to him. That's where I see the sense that there, there's some... They're, they're riding high on what God is doing. And so Joshua just boldly, without cowardice, walks right up to him and says, whose side are you on? Are you on their side or on, your, on our side? To which the angel of the Lord in so many words says, I haven't come to take sides, but I've come to take over. I've not come to take sides, but I've come to take over. And Joshua responds, uh, he says, I've come, I have come as the commander of the Lord's army. The Lord's heavenly host. That's who's come. Joshua falls at his face in worship and says, okay, commander, Here's the commander of the Israelite army coming out. Here's the commander of the Lord's army. Okay, commander, tell me what's the plan. Now this is strangely similar to what happened in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. The commander of the Lord's armies instructs him. He doesn't get out of, you know, unroll some paper and say, okay, here, now the, the, your army is here, and Jericho is here, and here's, we're going to do this, and you're going to come in here and do this. And He doesn't lay out this big battle plan. He says, take off your shoes. Remember I said that this, this text is full of stuff that doesn't make sense. You don't incapacitate an entire army. 
in the midst of enemy territory. You don't sit down and have a picnic in the midst of an entire army. And a soldier does not take off his shoes. You just don't do that. You don't take off your shoes. You're, because why? When, when your shoes are on, that shows that you're ready. Take off your shoes, Joshua. Because the place where you're standing is holy. And what that tells us is that this is none other than a pre-incarnate glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ who has set foot on the earth. He's shown up. He's reminding Joshua that this is not going to be according to human might or ingenuity. He is to be worshipped. Joshua should come in reverence of his holiness. Take off your shoes. You don't need battle shoes. You need to be in reverence of my holiness and purity. You need to come in genuine, humble, broken worship. It doesn't make sense for a soldier to take off his shoes. It only makes sense if that soldier is in the presence of someone greater than the enemy. You see, this is not about Joshua. It's about the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. About His superiority. That's what I mean by preeminence. His superiority. His, his exceedingly excellence. His exceeding excellence over everyone and over everything else. You've got to understand this. You've got to remember this. If you make your life about you, if you make your life about your temptations and your struggles, about your weaknesses, you will constantly be living in failure. But listen, understand His preeminence among all. Make your life more about genuine, humble worship. All the time. Make that the priority of your life. I like what one man said. He said the essential preparation for the fall of Jericho is that the earthly leader falls flat on his face before God. That is the prerequisite for God's plans to be unveiled and God's purpose to be activated. And the same is true of the church of God today and for its individual members. It is when we live in glad submission to God's will, His revealed in His word, that He can lift us up and lead us on. So here are the people of Israel and they're facing an uphill battle. And what they need most is not the greatest army but, the, but, but a submitted people. What they need most is not the strongest weapons but a sincere, a sincere worship. Three great reminders for these people. A reminder of the promise of Yahweh a reminder of the provision of Yahweh, and a reminder of the preeminence of Yahweh. And as I said at the beginning, it's my hope that this will lead us to a renewal of, of our loyalty to Almighty God as we go about living this life until He returns or calls us home. It, what you've seen here, friends, is, is that God... Is, this, is, this is the lesson. The lesson is that God is faithful and trustworthy. He is. He's faithful and He is trustworthy. He's committed to being who He is and to doing what He does. And you have the book of Joshua as a lesson of that. A reminder, if you will, of this great truth. When you see what God does here in the book of Joshua, 
as it's been passed down to him. When you say, what would possibly make you not trust God? He doesn't take sides. He takes over. There's no need to allegorize this. No need to spiritualize these real historical events. Just read them. And understand that this is a lesson about how God operates. It's not some mystic picture of anything. God is committed to keeping His Word. And that demands our consecration. No matter what. Even in the midst of delay. Have you believed what God said? Have you believed the promise of God? Have you come for your own self to embrace what He has said? God is working in our midst. And that calls for our humble willingness to approach Him in the way that He said. God is present with us and that calls for our submission. Your life is not about you. I don't know how else to say that. I'm not trying to be mean or demeaning. But it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our pleasure It's not about our happiness, not about our fulfillment, not about you getting what you really think you deserve in life. It's about Him. And I want you to see how committed God is to His determined plan so that nothing dissuades you from following Him fully. I want you to come face to face this morning with the fierce loyalty of God to His purpose for His people so that you and I walk out of here roundly committed to living in obedience to Him. Just specifically thinking this morning, as I was kind of marinating in this, thinking, is there something to which God has called me and you that you are fearful of obeying? thinking about young people this morning particularly young people tempted by the way the world thinks about relationships maybe some young lady here and you're you're tempted by the way that the world thinks about relationships and you're thinking my goodness if I obey God and I save myself till marriage I'm going to somehow lose out I'm going to miss my opportunity I'm going to become ostracized do you think that God is somehow hindered you can't radically obey him in that way is God somehow unable to bring you to the place that he has for you that you say you know what I can't I'll obey him up to this point but when it comes to that I can't obey him or a husband in a marriage relationship too much to lay down your life for your wife to give up your your will to humble yourself for your wife to serve her in such a way that Christ serves the church You think, oh, that's too much, I can't do that. Is God's hand somehow shortened? Is God's arm somehow diminished? That the God who did these things cannot take you in obedience to Him where He wants you to be? Our God is committed to doing what He said He will do. And I don't know what area of your life is leading you to, to, to tempting you to fall away or to, to not follow Him fully. But listen, God keeps His word he's committing to do what he says he will do and that means everything and while this is an amazing comfort it's also an astonishing warning because God will do what he said he will do that's what the Amorites learned they went on for generation after generation hey everything's fine it's been years since God said that 
And then all of a sudden, boom, his judgment came. Is there any part of your life that is in opposition to what God said? Is there, and I'm asking you individually, if I could come to you, each one of you, just look you in the eyes and say, is there any aspect of your life that is in opposition to what God has said? What is it? What, what, what's, what is it that's in your life right now that's in opposition to Him? How do I respond? Well, you respond by repenting. What does that mean? It means to change your mind, to change the direction of your your life, to change the direction of your living. Remove yourself from known sin. Don't excuse yourself. Too much excusing going on in the church today when it comes to sin. Well, we, we figure out all ways to excuse ourselves and justify, of course, this is right and this way I'm doing things. And, and I know that this isn't right, but after all, God's a God of grace. Listen, stop excusing. Start removing yourself from known sin in your life. Return to what is pleasing to God. That's repentance. Removing from, from known sin and returning to what is pleasing to God. To embrace His means of grace to you. That's what we do. We just take God at His word and say, you know what? I'm going to trust Him. It doesn't make sense. The world's saying this way and my own heart says this way, but I'm going to step out in radical obedience. Does it make sense? But that's the way my life is going today. You have this book as a reminder to you of God's faithfulness to His people. Let's pray.